Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911. Soul Patrol, Jesus 911, two man car. This is where Jesus is Lord and Mary is the Queen Mother. And this is a program where we teach you to love God, save souls, and slay errors. I'm reporting for duty. I got my partner, Paul. Are you on duty, my friend? Yes, yes, yes. Happy to be here. <laughs> you got it. Hey, today we want to talk about something that is very important because this is the way you come into the mystical body of Christ. It's called the sacrament of baptism. This is the mm -hmm. way, according to New Testament doctrine, that you become one with Jesus. And so... There's an article, a well-written article by a priest, where he compares the old rite of baptism, in other words, like pre-1965 baptism, with post-1965 baptism. And it's, it's important to point some of these things out. Again, we're not saying here that, uh, uh, that, that uh, post-1965 baptism is invalid. No, that's not at all. But there's a difference in wording. And when you hear this priest explain, you'll be able to understand that the pre-1965 baptismal rite was more precise in its theological language. And again, precision is everything in theology. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find. Uh, precision is everything when it comes to theology. Paul? Yeah, um, Jess, I can just tell you from a, a, a little personal on that. Um, I've noticed a huge difference you know, uh, you know, we're speaking about the sacrament of baptism here, but just in the actual prayer, when, when you pray the Latin Mass and you compare that to the uh, liturgy in the Novus Ordo Mass, um, I've noticed worlds uh, of difference. And I can tell you that in praying that prayer in the Latin Mass, it bring, for in my personal life, okay. it brings me closer to christ um it, you know it, it it encapsulates those deep deep feelings uh and and i'm not saying it, it's not based on feelings but it's yeah. just that 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 deep yearning inside for the lord yeah i, I hear what you're saying paul I, I think uh i'm tracking with you well let's go right i want to go right to the third paragraph where it says when we look at the history of the second vatican council and especially the discussions of the council fathers surrounding the documents on the liturgy which is called Sacrosanctum Concilium. We, be, we, we begin to have a sense of the key. The sense, this sense is strengthened and confirmed by an examination of the group tasked with reforming the liturgy. The Concilium, that's the name of the group that was tasked by Pope Paul VI to reform the liturgy. And its secretary, now this guy was a bad player here, Father Annibal Bunini. Okay, there's evidence that he was a Freemason. By the way, I just want to say something People will say, oh, there was bad people at Vatican II, bad prelates, bad theologians. Guess what? We've had 21 ecumenical councils. We've had bad prelates in all 21 ecumenical councils. The first one, uh, the Council of Jerusalem, we had, we had Judas. Uh, what was the, the, the second council, Nicaea in 325 AD, we had Arius and his band of brothers. Mm. So, so... The point that I'm making, 
any church historian will tell you there's always been bad actors in every single council. So don't get, don't say like, ooh, Vatican II, bad council, bad people. There's been bad people in every council, according to church historians. And so, <laughs> how about the tears and the wheat? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Jesus warned us. So it, it says the motive emerges quite clear ecumenism. That is a desire to dialogue and achieve greater unity with non-Catholics, most especially with Protestants. The changes in the Mass, which were noted above, begin to make sense when we look at it in the light of ecumenism. They're all meant to be a movement towards the Protestants. You know, we may even take the whole show on this, this topic, Paul. I think what ended up happening here, historically, six Protestants were invited as advisors and I think a lot of the modernist, the leftist uh, modernist theologians, they were saying, well, you know, the Protestants are offended by all the sacrificial language. They're offended by the priests, you know, at Orientum consecration and saying the consecration quietly. Maybe we should turn them around so Protestants could see it's more like, I don't know, like a sacred meal. And so without a doubt, you have the concilium, these bad actors post-Vatican II, they're the ones that started trying to build bridges with Protestants, and they went way too far. Uh, oh. they, they wanted the Protestants to feel comfortable. They figured, oh, if we do this, make these alterations to the Mass, we're going to get conversions of the Catholic Church by Protestants. Guess what? Yeah. Protestants that come into the church, Paul, they come in because they, they, they read their way in via tradition, the tradition of the church. Yeah. Yeah, Jess, when you make major changes... And I say, dare I say, major changes, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, uh, the liturgy of the mass and, uh, and, and the actual prayers um, that accompany the sacraments, there are unintended consequences. And in this case, you know, and, I, and I'm given the benefit of the doubt here when I say unintended consequences. Yes. But one of the uh, yeah, but one of the unintended consequences that I see here, I'm, uh, you know, and I'm trying to, you know, love hopes, all things and, and believe, you know, so I'm, uh, uh, right. you know, I'm not yeah. trying to judge uh, the players there who are at the, the council, but one of the unintended consequences that I see is ultimately when you try to accommodate these non-Catholic Protestant ideas, you essentially say, hey, we don't need the Catholic church. <laughs> You know what I mean? Uh, the Catholic Church, therefore, rendered obsolete because, uh, as we're going to see, when we look at baptism and, and how it was, uh, you know, administered in the old right, um, uh, even the, the position of the priest, you know, in the sacrament, uh, you know, it's unnecessary, uh, essentially, you know, with the changes. Um Anyway, we'll and the, see. Art, the article is going to mention that, which you just said the article does okay. mention that. It says, um, let me go to, uh, to the fifth paragraph here. The, uh, no, the fourth. All of the new sacramental rites bear the mark of ecumenism. But one of the most striking is certainly the new rite of baptism. Even a brief side-by-side -side comparison of the old rite and the new rite reveals a purposeful and determined elimination of Catholic thinking. That's what you're saying right now, Paul. Presumably, mm -hmm. presumably, as an attempt to celebrate unity with Protestants. Uh, the purpose of this article is to make uh, such a comparison. For the sake of brevity and clarity, I will focus on comparing the rites of infant baptism. The old rite of infant baptism 
uses place and movement as part of its symbolism. The ceremony begins outside the church, and then proceeds inside to the entrance of the baptistry, and finally to the font. The symbolism is made quite clear by the ritual and, and the others and the other and the prayers. The unbaptized infant is not yet worthy to enter the church because he has inherited original sin and is under the power of the devil. Right at the start of the ceremony, the priest will question the child. What do you ask of the church of God? The response is sim- solemn and simple. Faith. What does faith bring you? Eternal life. Since the child cannot speak, Holy Mother Church supplies and asks the godparents to lend their voice to the child. But it is to the child himself that the priest addresses his questions, both here and throughout the ceremony. Before entering the church, the priest will perform two exorcisms. By the way, this is under the old rite. And will give the infant blessed salt, which itself has been exorcised. The priest himself wears a violet stole, the color of penance. A battle is being waged over the soul of this little child. The devil wants to keep him for his own, but Jesus intervenes through his church to save the infant. That's, that's, that theology is so beautiful right there that he just explained. Wow. Yes. Wow. That's total New Testament Pauline theology. Oh, yeah. Do the next paragraph, Paul. Yeah. The priest places his stole on the child's head and leads him inside the church. There, all who are present join in a profession of faith. That faith which God will give the child through his church. The priest performs a third exorcism. Wow. And then touches the ears and nostrils of the child saying, Epheta, Epheta, or yeah, Epheta, Epheta, or be thou opened. For a second time, the priest will question the child, asking the first part of a series of questions that represent the baptismal vows: Do you renounce Satan, and so on? The child is then anointed with the consecrated oil of catechumens, the final preparation for baptism. Only now does the priest to a white stole signifying the joy and peace which will follow once the sacrament itself is given. Mm. The ceremony moves to the final place by the side of the baptismal font. Go ahead. One last time, one last time the priest addresses the infant asking finally, do you wish to be baptized? The child is then baptized. And there follow a few ceremonies which demonstrate the effects of the sacrament. First, the child is anointed with the sacred chrism, the church's most holy oil, signifying that he is truly free and ready to rule with Christ. Second, the priest gives the child a white garment which signifies the purity of his soul after baptism. He is no longer a sinner, but a friend of God, beloved and holy. The priest tells the child to carry this garment unstained to the judgment seat. Finally, the priest hands uh, hands a lighted candle to the child, which represents the state of grace, the presence of God within him. The child is to keep this light shining throughout his life. We'll stop right there. We'll pick it up. Jesus 911 man car talking about the sacrament of baptism. We're looking side by side, a juxtaposition of the old rite and the new rite. And uh, you'll hear our commentary. We'll be right back.
now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Today's the Feast of St. Peter and St. Paul. Pray for, uh, I mean, St. Timothy and St. Titus, excuse me. St. Timothy and St. Titus, these are the sidekicks of St. Paul. He, he discipled them. He made them Catholic bishops in the, first, in the early church. And uh, they went on uh, to establish their own Catholic communities back in the first century. Uh, St. Timothy, St. Titus, pray for us. We're talking about the sacrament of baptism, a juxtaposition by a Catholic priest who wrote an article between the pre-1965 rite of baptism and the post-1965. And we're pointing things out in terms of the precision of the language. Paul, go ahead and uh, take it away. You're wrapping up that last paragraph. Yes. The child is to keep this light. So basically, you know, before the break, we said that the, uh, the, the priest hands a lighted candle to the child, which represents the state of grace, the presence of God in his soul. The child is to keep that light shining throughout his life. The ceremony concludes simply, go in peace and may the Lord be with you. The child equipped with the grace that divinizes him and the virtue of faith now has uh, has to work out his salvation in the world so that he may one day enjoy eternal life justice is so beautiful and so it's so rich it's so rich yes yeah yeah I love theology it. so rich go ahead jess yeah let us turn now to the new rite of baptism as i mentioned above the key to understanding the changes to the right of, of is is ecumenism we can at, in, in other words what the father's saying here is that at Vatican II, you had some bad players, and after the council, they, they set up a commission called the Concilium. And what they're trying to do, well, I'm not going to judge their hearts. They were modernists. We'll just say that. They're modernists. And what they wanted to do, there was this, this huge push in the 60s to bridge the gaps between us and Protestants. Now, there were some good things that were done uh, by, at Vatican II in, in terms of Protestant relationships. For example, I'll tell you one thing where I think that they cited, they, they did a good thing. Prior to Vatican II, Protestants were called heretics in all the books of the Catholic Church. All of them. Uh, and, and, and the Orthodox, we would always call them schismatics. Though they are, theologically, the Protestants are heretics, at least material heretics. And though the, the, uh, the, uh, the Orthodox are schismatics, that's probably not the best way to start a conversation with somebody if you want to bring them into the one true church. Uh, by saying, hey, schismatic, come over here. I want to talk to you about uh, uh, what you guys are missing. Hey, heretic, come over here. You guys are missing seven books, and you guys only got one sacrament. Come on over here. That's probably not the way to start a conversation. So Vatican II called them separated brethren. Guess what? I got no problem with that because they're baptized. Protestants and Orthodox are baptized. So they have, like Pope Pius XII said in 1958, he said, they have an, uh, it's an imperfect relationship with the mystical body of Christ, but nonetheless, yes. because, because the sacrament of baptism is owned and operated by the Catholic Church. I'm going to say that again. The sacrament of baptism is, an, oh, so in some way, shape, or form, even John MacArthur or Raul Reese, when they baptize somebody validly at Calvary Chapel or some other denomination, they don't realize that they're bringing them into the mystical body of Christ, though they have an imperfect relationship with the mystical body of Christ, because that sacrament is owned and operated by the Catholic Church. Yes, and Jess, you, you reminded me of a, uh, a verse in sacred scripture 
a brother offended is harder won than a strong city. You know, uh, I get it. Uh, you know, in, in this case, you know, um, you, you know, we're not going to say, hey, schismatic, hey, this, or hey, you know. Hey, heretic. Uh, you know, but yeah, hey, heretic. But the reality of the situation is um, uh, those things would be offensive. Try, you know, try to, uh, uh, try delivering the truth of the gospel, you know, uh, when you preface the conversation with those kind of ideas. So you're right. This idea of, hey, let's remember that, you know, in reality, we have more in common because the Bible says we have all things in common in Christ. Yeah. And, the, and, and, and that baptism, as the church recognizes, so long as it's done uh, with the proper form, you know, uh, yeah, you know, which is the, uh, you know, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which a lot of some Protestant churches don't. They baptize in Jesus' name only. But right. the bottom That's line the is, is, uh, yeah, we have, yeah, yeah, we have to, you know, um, you know, you know, reach out to them as a brother. Yeah. And now with the modernists at Vatican II, they went too far. So that's okay. We're going to call them separated brothers because they're baptized. But we know in the back of our minds, theologically, they're heretics and schismatics. We know that theologically, but that's not the way you start a conversation. But what they, went too, they went too far by, uh, by taking out all the rich language, the rich ornate language from the sacrament of baptism in order to appease the Protestants. That's where they went too far. Yeah, yeah. Because where that rich language exists, Jess, they can connect the dots on their own. And, yeah, and they're, realize, they're smart. Hey, they're not dumb. Something, yeah, something, something rotten in Denmark with the way I believe because this is something a little different. So, you know, you, you have to present the truth so that people can, you know, uh, uh, they, they, you know, faith comes by hearing, right? Yeah. And so, things, so words matter. <laughs> yeah, I don't, and I don't think by lowering the bar to say, okay, Protestants are going to be offended by all this rich medieval language that's lowering the bar no i i say we 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 hold the bar high because uh the, these people they they also have the spirit of god because they've been baptized they're going to be able like you said to connect the dots and they're going to be able to realize wow this is what i'm missing this is this is a description of the one true faith li left to us by jesus christ so the article yes. says here let us now turn to the new rite of baptism What's in the old rite of baptism, which a Protestant would find hard to accept? What would emphasize our difference, differences in belief more than our similarities? First and foremost, Protestantism tends to emphasize the value of the personal act of faith, made knowingly and freely. They call that believer's baptism. Thus, faith is not something received through the agency of another. The soul must go to Jesus directly according, you know, in Protestantism. Second, there's no such thing as a sacramental priesthood in Protestantism or a person acting in persona Christi. Therefore, the sac sacraments are not given through the ministry of priests, nor do priests have a power that no other person can have, such as power over the devil to perform an exorcism. Finally, the Protestants hold that death has already accomplished everything to do with their salvation in his passion and death. The idea of applying the marriage of the passion to us here and now is quite foreign to Protestants, especially if such an application happens through the agency of another human being that is a priest. Mm -hmm. As we now go through the new change, the, the new rite of infant baptism, we can see that the points above are really driving the changes. The new rite of infant baptism is designed to be as inoffensive 
to Protestants as possible. I would emphasize this here because I think that outside of this perspective of ecumenism, we can give no single and logical account as to why certain things have changed. As a final preparatory comment, the new rite allows for so many options in various prayers and ceremonies that it is hard to speak about the rite itself. In laying it out, therefore, I've chosen to follow, to follow the first option provided in the sacramentary. Here, also, another thing where the Protestants, uh, another area of blindness, and this is why, again, the modernists at Vatican II, uh, try, trying to appease Protestants. Protestants, starting with Luther and Calvin, they, have, they had no idea of a sacerdotal priesthood, of a ministerial priesthood. They believed in the priesthood of all believers. Now, we as Catholics believe that, but in a secondary sense, we believe as Catholics that there's a ministerial priest that comes from the apostles through the presbyters, and then we believe that there's also a royal priesthood. That's the lay people. That's where Luther and Calvin got it wrong. They just said that everybody's part of the royal priesthood, and there is no such distinction as the ministerial priesthood. Uh, that offers the the the, uh, the the sacrifice that Malachi, the prophet, talked about, the sacrifice of the Gentiles day and night throughout all the nations. Luther and Calvin, were, were, they were blind to that. <laughs> and so the monarchs yeah. at Vatican II, I also believe they had uh, more kind of a, of a Protestant look at the priesthood. And so they figured, you know what? Uh, all this uh, sacrificial sacerdotal language, we can just take this away Let's bridge the gap with Protestants, but once again, they just went too far. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm reminded of another scripture. I always say it. I'll say it again. There's a way that seems right to a man, but that way leads to death. I, yeah. I, you know what I mean. And I think that when those breadcrumbs go out, you know, more and more and more, there are those that would lead, uh, that would uh, cause changes that would, you know, uh, try to weaken, you know, uh, uh, the purpose that uh, Jesus established the church for jess i have a question for you it's a question related to what we're talking about and as you know um protestants they view uh, baptism as uh and, and not all protestants the higher right. protestant churches don't they view it as a sacrament but most of the fundamentalists and evangelical churches they view baptism as an ordinance as opposed to the catholic correct view which views it as a sacrament and a sacrament is something that God is doing. And an ordinance is some, you know, the the way I used to think of it is a, an ordinance is like, Hey, you know, we're doing it because Christ said to do it like an order. Yours is not the reason why yours is, but to do or die. We used to say in the military. So, Mm. so we're doing it as an ordinance, you know, so there's no, as you know, with the sacrament, there's a matter uh, there, there's, there's form and intent. And so, seems to me like intent might be lacking here because they don't believe that baptism uh, is the door that brings you into the church. They don't believe baptism is uh, is efficacious, you know, for salvation. They don't, you know, a sacrament, as you know, Jess. So, yeah. so am I on to something or am I just, you know, because I no, know no, the no, church is said. No, you're right about that. Again, I think the church uh, looks at Protestants that do the, the baptism with the Trinitarian formula they they look at them uh, with goodwill that they do have the intent of doing what Jesus Christ said in Matthew twenty eight nineteen and imparting uh, making them children of God and imparting the Holy Spirit. So 
It's kind of a default position. We assume that Protestant pastors have goodwill and good intentions. But this is why a lot of times when Protestants come into the Catholic Church, the church will baptize them, not because they're rebaptizing them. In the mm-hmm. event that there's any questions, they'll ask them, do you have your certificate? No. Where were you baptized? We're trying to contact that pastor. He's dead. So the church, just to make sure that the person is validly baptized, they'll baptize them. It was called conditionally in the Catholic Church. Because, again, mm. the Catholic Church has a very good record of baptism. Protestants, not as much. And uh, Yeah, in, again, Spanish, in Spanish, you guys say en, en caso. Castle, exactly. And again, a lot of Protestants, a lot of Protestants have fallen into the uh, the oneness theology of just baptizing the name of Jesus only. So that would be an invalid baptism, right there. Yeah. It has to be. It has to follow the prescription of Matthew twenty eight nineteen. Uh, so it says the the new rite of infant baptism does away from the movement from place to place. It is to begin. Ah, I hear the music. Soul Patrol, Jesus nine one. We're talking about the sacrament of baptism. This is what gets you into the door, basically. This is what brings you into the mystical body of Christ. It makes you a child of God. Divine sonship removes the original sin. Uh, This is what uh, puts you in a state of sanctifying grace. There's so much to the sacrament. We'll be right back. Stick around. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. We're talking about the sacrament of baptism, old rite, new rite. One of the questions me and Paul were discussing about, uh, well, the Catholic Church has taught that pre-Vatican II and post-Vatican II, anybody could baptize a person in case of emergency. So a, a nurse in a hospital, she could be a Hindu, she could be a Buddhist. Her patient's dying. The patient says, I've never been baptized. Can you baptize me, please? Uh, the, oh, yo, you come from a Catholic family? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, the, a nurse can baptize the person who's uh, about to die. Why? Does, the, does that nurse know all the nuances of the sacrament of baptism about intention, form, and matter? No. As long as she uses water and not soda or milk or a beer, you have to use water. You've got to say the words of Jesus Christ. And intention, well, she's probably not going to know the full intentions of the Catholic Church, but that's where that's what the greatness of Holy Mother Church comes in. There's a, a phrase that's used in theology, it's called ecclesia supplices, which means the church supplies where we lack. So the mm. church would supply what's needed, uh, maybe in the lack of intention of that, of that nurse in the hospital who's baptizing uh, that, the patient that's dying. And she doesn't understand all the nuances of the sacrament of baptism. She's just saying, this guy comes from a Catholic family. I'm going to baptize him. And uh, here the Bible says in Matthew 20, 19, I'm going to say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to use water like Jesus did. That's all I know. Again, the church will supply where that nurse lacked. Glad you cleared that up. Thank you. Yep. It says here, it is the new infant rite of baptism does away with the movement from place to place. It is to begin wherever the people are gathered and waiting. Talking about the new rite, post-1965. It's supposed to be done in the presence of the faithful, or at least relatives and friends, all of whom take active part in the rite. The priest is, is vested in festive colors, and he begins by greeting everyone and reminding the parents of the joy that they, have, that they had in receiving a child. The priest questions the parents of the child, asking them the name that they give to their child and what they ask of God's church for the child. They reply, baptism. 
the priest immediately reminds them of their responsibility in training the child in the practice of the faith. And he asks if they understand what they are undertaking. He also asks the godparents if they understand their responsibilities. The priest then welcomes the child to the Christian community and, it, and its name claims the child for Christ. In silence, he traces the sign of the cross on the infant's head and then asks the parents and godparents to do the same thing. The next two parts of the liturgy of the ceremony are the liturgy of the world, word and the prayer of the faithful or intercessory prayers. The former comprises one or two scripture readings and a homily. The latter involves various invocations and prayers for the child in a litany style request and response. These two parts of the ceremony, entirely foreign to the old rite pre-1965, closely mimic the baptismal rite in Kramer's Book of Common Prayer for the Church of England. The next part of the ceremony is titled, quote, Prayer of Exorcism and Anointing, close quote. The prayer which the priest says is addressed to God, he's talking about the new rite here, so it is not, properly speaking, an exorcism, which is always addressed to the devil, commanding him to leave. The prayer itself is odd because it asks God for what the sacrament of baptism itself will do. Compare this to the old rite, which before the baptism is, is continually asking God to make the child worthy of the grace of baptism, that is, to prepare him for the sacrament and its effects. The anointing is done with the oil of catechumens, but it may be omitted if the minister judges it to be pastorally necessary. In this case, it is replaced with a short prayer. At the conclusion of this part, the priest lays his hands on the head of the child in silence, then all proceed to the baptistry unless they are already there. Before the baptism itself, the celebrant reminds the people of the wonderful work of God, and then he performs a blessing and an invocation of God over the baptismal water. This latter part is never omitted even during the Easter season. This is again taken more or less directly from the 1549 Book of Common Prayer for the Church of England. By contrast, the baptismal water used in the Old Rite pre-1965 is never blessed at the baptism itself because it was already blessed at the Easter Vigil Ceremony. And the priest is obliged to use this water to baptize in the traditional Easter Vigil. The ceremony for the blessing for the baptismal water is solemn and lengthy, involving also the lit Paschal candle representing Christ and referencing Christ's passion and death repeatedly. What is so striking about this change in the new rite is that it effectively breaks the connection between East, the Easter Vigil and baptism, that is, between Christ's passion and the application of the fruits of that passion to each individual soul through the sacraments and agency of the priests. Thus, the new rite removes this, specific, this specifically Catholic theology of the sacraments. Paul, you want to pick it up from there? Yeah, well, it's just amazing, Jess, how, you know, and just a little comment real quick. Yeah. How everything, you know, the knee bones connected to the shin bone and every, you know, so... So when the way the old rite was laid out, it, you know, it, it, it communicated, you know, uh, essentially uh, the truth of everything that was accomplished by Christ. And, and, and just how you said it so beautifully. And the fruits of that are what? The doors are open. Mother Church, through the sacrament of baptism, souls are being saved. That's beautiful. Yeah. No, it's beautiful. It is. It's, it's rich. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. 
The celebrant next addresses the parents and the godparents, reminding them of their responsibility to bring the child up in the practice of the faith and asking them to renew the vows of their own baptism. Uh, there is here a strange oversight. The child himself is never addressed in the new rite of baptism and so does not make any vows, whether by himself or through the voice of the God. If the parents, if the parents were baptized as infants in the new rite, what vows are they then renewing? At, <laughs> good point. At the end of the questioning, the celebrant asked the parents if it is their will that their child be baptized. In the faith of the church, in the faith of the church, which we have all professed with you, the celebrant then performs the baptism. The concluding rites are called explanatory rites and involve the anointing with chrism, the giving of a white garment and the lighted candle. As it is in the old rite, the prayers accompanying these are completely different, however, in the anointing with chrism. The celebrant notes that God has welcomed the child into his holy people. The white garment is a sign of Christian dignity, which dignity is to be brought unstained into heaven. The candle is given to the parents and godparents. They are to keep the light burning. The epeta. Is that right? Epeta. Yeah, that's, that's Hebrew. Uh, that, that's what yeah. Jesus said. Uh, Ephetha, to be opened. Ephetha. Okay. Yeah. The the, the um, of the old rite is also inserted here, but is entirely optional. It is likewise modified. It touches the ears and the mouth of the child instead of the ears and nostrils. The prayer is completely different from the old rite. You know, Jess, uh, it may sound like uh, splitting of hairs, you know, but in reality, um, uh. It's not. <laughs> uh, yeah, but again, w once again, I, it's above our pay grade as lay Catholics, so there's not a whole lot we can do. Uh, and once right. again, I, I go back to the old Latin adage, Ecclesia Suplices, the church will supply, Mother Church will supply where we lack or where Amen. prelates have dropped Amen. the ball. Uh, yeah, and, 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 yeah. yeah, and just to clear it up, Jess, we're not trying to say that somehow the new rite of baptism is, no, uh, of course you not. know, uh, uh, yeah, because that's all, not what we're saying. But All we're saying is that, objectively speaking, that prayers were redacted, that's all, and uh, and yeah. precision is everything in prayer. That's why when you like you read the rite of exorcism, it's so powerful because the prayers are so precise. Go ahead and pick up the next uh, two paragraphs. Go ahead. Yeah. Through this comparison of the two rites, we can see how a Protestant dominates the new rite. While the Catholic teaching on baptism and the sacraments so clearly expressed in the old rite falls into the, the background, it is helpful to run briefly through the major shifts that, that show this. First of all, why is the child never addressed in the new rite? Why does the celebrant always speak to the parents and godparents incessantly, reminding them of their responsibilities? It is because the Protest, uh, for, the, for a Protestant, nothing can replace the personal act of faith. My personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Yeah. Now, the infant is incapable of such an act at this time. Therefore, it is useless to speak to him. It is instead the duty of the family 
of the Christian community to raise the child and dispose him to make this act of faith in Jesus Christ when the time comes. This contrasts starkly with the old rite, where it is the child himself who receives the outpouring of grace through the sacrament and who is therefore made already a child of God. While still an infant, he receives faith from the church through the ministry of her priest. The child's responsibility is to maintain his baptismal throughout life. And Jess, I'll, let me just add, uh, make a comment here yeah. that um, the, what, what, these, what the old rite does is it teaches the faith. It, it instructs what we believe. And if you remove these things, this is why, um, uh, you know, when we see these subtle changes that seem like really no big deal, why do so many Catholics, as an example, uh, deny the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist today? It's because all the things that that speak of uh, the uniqueness and the holiness of the Holy Eucharist uh, have been downplayed or removed. And therefore, the people then begin to uh, they're not reminded of these things. That's the way I see this. Yeah, good point. It says here, second, the role of the priest is almost entirely eliminated. Besides the actual pouring of the water, everything he does is also done by the community, taking active part in the rite, following the Protestant idea. The celebrant is merely a president of a community speaking in the name of the community. I'll mention something about that on the next segment. Jesus 911, two-man call. We're talking about the sacrament of baptism, its importance and its power. And we're juxtaposing the two rites. We'll be right back. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Soul Patrol, Jesus 911. Here's just something that just jumps out at me, and because and, I want to be fair also. I don't want to just pig pile on you know the modernists and they got this wrong, they got this wrong. Some things they got right. For example, you'll find, and a lot of my trad friends will say, I can't stand that word community, Jess. I can't stand it. Well, I say, well, you know what? It's a New Testament word. It, mm-hmm. Vatican II brought in a New Testament word. I know people don't like it because it smacks of modernism and liberal Catholic. They'll say, the community. Guess what? It's a New Testament word. It's called koinonia. It's written by St. Mm-hmm. Paul dozens of times. So I, I get that there was bad things that happened at the council, but let's not pig pile and let's not exaggerate and embellish things like, again, community is found in the Bible. Parish is not yeah. found in the Bible. Don't get me wrong. I use the word parish yeah. because that's a church yeah. word. It's a, it's a church word. It's not a biblical word. The, the biblical word is community. And so I'm just saying that yeah. for some people that want to pig pile and say everything was wrong in Vatican II. No, they got some things right. Let's continue with yeah, the thought and then, here. Yeah. yeah. One little quick comment. Uh, but then again, just. Words can be applied, right? And it depends on how you apply those words. And uh, you know what I mean? The devil's in the details, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, It's like a sword. It can be used for good. I mean, if you're saying community and you're meaning something other than what the traditional Catholic interpretation is. And that's unfortunately, that's what happened a lot with the Vatican II documents. The liberals took it, you know, their interpretation was way off base. 
and uh, you know the continuity, yeah. the, the hermeneutic uh, continuity. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's the way. I, every time I read yeah. Community yeah. Vatican II, I read it with the with yeah. the Pauline understanding. It means it yeah. means the baptized believers and followers of Jesus Christ in the early church under the apostles. That's what I think by community. So yeah, yeah. It, it says here third. Or no, second, the priest says, the role of the priest is almost entirely eliminated besides the actual pouring of the water. Everything he, he does is also done by the community. Oh, I already read that. Third, why have all the exorcisms been eliminated in the, in the, in the rite of baptism pre-1965? Christ has not left the power to a specially chosen minister. Oh, Christ has not left a power to a specially chosen minister to drive out the devil. There's no essential difference between priest and layperson in terms of power and function. To have a priest perform exorcisms would contradict this Protestant understanding. So Father's talking about, he's criticizing here, uh, again, the new rite uh, that's eliminated basically the, exor- the, 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 the several exorcisms that are in the actual rite itself. He writes, mm-hmm. we could perhaps mention another reason for the elimination of the exorcisms. The focus on the devil is foreign to a modern mentality. That's a true statement. Which is inclined to spiritual optimism. In the new rite, joy reigns supreme, and the occasional mention of original sin is not allowed to take any prominent place. The celebrant of the new rite is dressed festively and reminds the parents right away of their joy in having a child. By contrast, the old rite is stark. It begins with a command to the child with an exorcism. The priest is dressed in penitential colors. Immediately, we are aware of a desperate struggle over the soul of the little one. As a final point, we can mention the obvious inclusion of ceremonies from the Protestant Book of Common Prayer. What could be the point of including such things when this book itself represented a falling away from the Catholic rites? There can only be one purpose, to bring the Catholic rite more into conformity with the Protestant understanding of baptism. This is, in a word, ecumenism. But I, I would say this is, again, this is false ecumenism when we cave into the Protestants. Proper ecumenism is agreeing on the truth. And who has the fullness of truth? Mm-hmm. The Catholics. <laughs> Go ahead, re- finish the last two paragraphs and we'll just discuss. Yeah. At the end of this analysis, we are left with a crucial question. Is ecumenism really worth abandoning our, proper, our properly Catholic rights? We can say with strict truth that the new rite of baptism is just as much Protestant as it is Catholic. I would go further and say that it is more Protestant than Catholic, since by omission and ambiguity, it empties the symbolism of the right of Catholic meaning. Is this a good thing? What other consequences do we face from such Protestant rights? That's right, cause effect. Uh, Each reader will have to face these questions and decide for himself, but let him weigh the matter carefully. And in the context of the universal crisis in the faith, we see today, what percentage of Catholics still believe in original sin and its effects? What percentage of Catholics realize the seriousness of their baptismal vows and their duty to maintain the purity of their soul by emptying our Catholic rites of their specificity, of their, their, their specifically Catholic character? Have we not largely contributed to this crisis of faith? Whoever wishes to be saved must, above all, keep the Catholic faith. For unless a person keeps it whole and entire, he will undoubtedly be lost forever. And that's the Athanasian Creed. <laughs> back, back, back in the fourth century, Saint Athanasius, pray for us. Yeah. Yes. 
once again, some people will say, well, do I need to get baptized over again? No, the Bible says there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Uh, we just, once again, we trust in Holy Mother Church that she will supply everything that we need. Uh, in, uh, even though there could be some, uh, some human failings, some, some human shortcomings, even uh, shortcomings in a council. Here's something that I would say to the average Catholic that's been baptized, uh, you know, post-1965 under the new right. I would just say this. Number one is that it's important that we, that we all live in a state of grace. The best way to ward off the evil one is by frequent confession and frequent communion in a state of grace. I would also say that every Catholic should have a fervent devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus. And what I mean by that, especially enthronement to the sacred heart of Jesus in your home. Make sure that every Catholic, every man, it's your responsibility to enthrone the sacred heart of Jesus in your home. It's simple. You go on the internet and type in sacred home enthronement. You buy the picture of the sacred heart of Jesus. You have it blessed by a Catholic priest. The prayers are right there on the internet. You print out the prayers and you do a prayer liturgy. You as the man are the priest of the home. Ephesians 5.22, you're the Christ of the home. You lead the family in a 15-minute prayer service where you're installing Jesus officially as the King and Lord of your house. The next thing that I would do for people, again, that have been baptized in the new rite, I would make sure that you're praying the daily rosary. Praying the rosary every day. Especially you men, the men. Because the grace that you receive from that prayer, it flows downstream. It flows down to your wife. It flows down to your kids. It flows down to your grandkids. If you don't believe me, just read Exodus chapter 20 and Exodus chapter 32, where Moses says that the, that the blessings of the Father go down a thousand generations to the thousandth generation. It flows downstream. Your prayers, your faith, your penance. And it says, the sins of the Father go down about to the third and fourth generation. And so as a mm. Catholic man, it's the holiness is going to come to the house by the man, by the patriarch. That's what Scripture says. And this is what society's trying to destroy. They're trying to destroy patriarchy because the devil understands that the grace of God, the grace of the Trinity flows from heaven through the man of the house to the family. Why do you think St. Paul, when he was confronted and Silas were confronted by the jailer? He's about to kill himself. He's about to commit Harry Carey. And he looks at St. Paul and Silas who had just been singing to God and all the jail doors just flew open miraculously. The jailer knew, man, there was power when these guys were singing to, their, to the God that they believe in. And so the Philippian jailer, the tradition tells us that he had a sword in his hand. The Bible does it, but he's about to stick himself in the stomach and commit suicide. He says, sir, what must I do to be saved? What does St. Paul say? Believe in the Lord, Acts 16.31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your family will be saved. Notice yeah, how, how people are saved. Household salvation comes through patriarchy. How was Noah's family saved? By Noah. And his eight family members were saved. I'm just telling you, when you look at the Old and New Testament, this is the way God has ordained salvation. So guys, 
we gotta, we, we've got to bump up our game. Make sure you're living in a state of grace. Make sure you're going to monthly confession. Make sure you're receiving Holy Communion as often as possible, during the week as, as possible, daily if possible. Make sure you, you, you uh, install the sacred heart of Jesus as the king and center of your house. It's a simple home enthronement. Make sure you're praying the rosary every day, Catholics, and make sure you also have holy water in your house. I have holy water by my front door and holy water by my bed and a little cup. And I bless myself at night before I go to sleep and I bless my house. I sprinkle drops in my house. And here's a, here's a beautiful prayer that St. John Chrysostom taught us back in the 4th century. Here it is, men. Every single day, either do it in the daytime or in the evening, get some holy water, just sprinkle a few drops in your house, whatever, in whatever, the living room, your room, and just, and say, May the peace of Christ be upon this house. Mm. St. John Chrysostom, doctor of the church, says, when a Catholic man does that over his house, he says, God opens the floodgates of grace and dumps actual grace right into that house. So guys, for the rest of your life, starting today, get some holy water, even after the show, go to your living room and just say this, May the peace of Christ be upon this house. And guess what? That patriarchal prayer that you just prayed, it affords blessings and protections to everybody in that house. Paul. Yes. You can't add to a mic drop moment. <laughs> that, that was a mic drop moment. But I'll tell you this. I will, I will tell you this, guys. Listen. Um, uh, Christianity, everything that Jess is saying is telling you that the Catholic, the authentic Catholic faith is not a spectator sport. That's right. Okay? And parents, fathers must assume their God-given role over their families and begin to act, you know, uh, understanding the priest, you know, the priesthood that he has, the authority. Mm. Uh, these are the things that matter and you can make a difference in in the lives of your family. That's right. Our only, you know, listen, our goal is to get out of here, right? That's our only goal. P.K. Yep. Chesterton said, yeah, go ahead, Jess. Yeah, he said, uh, yeah. Uh, we're, we're only in this world to get out of this world. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're here to get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Live in a state of grace. <laughs> Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Pray the rosary daily. Hey, up next, Jerry Matuda, hands-on apologetics. As for two of these, uh, these two retired cops, we are EOW, end of watch. We're out 10-7. But we're always on duty for Jesus. Always on patrol. God bless you. Keep the faith. <laughs>